the uh, walking through the Bible in, in, I say 16 verses, but it's 16 sections, 16, sometimes we deal with two verses and, and that kind of thing. But we're going to walk through Genesis to Revelation. You know, we're spending a lot of time in Genesis. Well, you have to, because that lays the groundwork and the foundation for the whole story. So a big part of the story of the Bible is found in Genesis. So don't, don't flip through Genesis and not understand the importance of it. We're going to see one this morning that really is a pivotal point um, of the Bible, actually, but it's introduced in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we talked about the idea, first principle was the idea that God, um, as king, created a kingdom. We talked about the second idea is that Jesus, or that God then decided to create man and allow man to represent and run his kingdom. And then last week we talked about the idea that Satan came along and got man to choose to rebel against God and to sin and to choose sin over God and that he could no longer represent God's kingdom and so some things changed. And this morning we're going to look at more specifically what happens as a result of man's choice and how in that dark moment of history, when all of the world appears doomed, Jesus comes in, or God comes in, and he offers a ray of hope all the way back into Genesis chapter 3. And um, it is a pivotal point if you study theology. There's a big fancy term for what we're going to talk about this morning called the proto-evangelum. Um, and, and what it is is it's actually the gospel in a nutshell in Genesis chapter 3. So um, that's the story. Let's read, and uh, then we'll talk. We're going to start, like I say, in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to back it up a little ways. It says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? For the first time, man is hiding from God. Because that's what sin does. Sin, sin, sin separates us from God. It, it, it puts some division between us and God. And so man's hiding. And notice what he says. Um, and he answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, here's the first time, it's interesting. It's the first time fear is introduced in the Bible, by the way. The first time we see fear is in connection to sin. And so he says, I was afraid. And, and he said, who told you you were naked? In other words, it's the idea of, wait a minute, wait a minute. This hasn't been an issue until now. Why is it that you feel like, Adam, you need to cover something? Up until now, there's openness and honesty between you and me. There's been no reason to hide anything from me, Adam. Why is it now that you know you're naked? How did that happen, Adam? It's not like God didn't know. He's trying to get Adam to understand what happened. And he said... Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me from the fruit of the tree and I ate it. It's interesting because now for the first time, what do we have? We have blame now. Up until now, there's never, there's never been a need for that. But now there's guilt over what he's done. And the natural way to deal with guilt is to what? Shift it to somebody else. So the first thing that he does is he goes, hey, the woman that you gave me. And by the way, you know what he's ultimately saying here? The focus is not the woman. The focus is you gave me. The focus here is, you know what? Everything was fine until she showed up, and that's your fault. 
So, I mean, you know, this is a, there's a subtle thing here that Adam is saying. You know, we look at it and go, you know, oh, it's the woman, it's the woman. No, Adam is blaming God. Adam is saying, God, look, you're the one who must us up, not me. And you go, whoa, yeah, yeah, that's what he's doing here. And he's subtly blaming God for the situation. And you know what? You go, look, look. We look at that as like, that's horrendous. How would anybody do that? We do it all the time. We do it all the time. You know, God, if it, it, you, know, you know, the only reason I'm in this situation, God, is because that salesman gave me a really good deal, and you brought that salesman into my life. You know, you are the one who could have kept that flyer from ever getting into my box that says I got the Coles 30% this month. Oh, yeah, tell, we don't even want to go there. Between Coles Cash and their little 30% thing, I'm telling you, there are some brilliant marketing people at Coles. They are absolutely brilliant. Because my wife, who is as tight as they come, is all of a sudden, well, i got to go to Coles now. Love her to death, go. Just buy me something. Uh, anyway. But, I mean, you know, we, we do this blame thing all the time. And it's because of sin, by the way. And that's what Adam does. He, he passes it off. And remember, we talked about this last week. This is not an Eve thing. This is a, when Satan's talking to Eve, Adam was standing there the whole time. And notice what he said. The Lord, what have you done? He said, and then, and then it says, uh, the woman that you put me here gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And what does she do? She now shifts the blame to the serpent and says, that a serpent deceived me, and I ate. It's the serpent's fault. And then notice what happened. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, Cursed be you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. There are two aspects to this. Some believe that this is literal. Some believe this is figurative. Some believe that this is both. I like the both category. Um, again, we appear. it appears that up to this point, maybe even snakes went upright. You think you're scared of them now. Imagine coming around a corner and one standing eyeball to eyeball with you. Um <laughs> But so some people will be literally one of the curses that snakes are now going to be on their belly. A second idea um, is that this is also figurative. This is the idea that Satan is going to be humbled at the lowest level. Because again, when you go to Isaiah and you read the history of Satan, you understand that Satan at one time was one of the highest angels in heaven before he fell. He had one of the highest positions in heaven. And so for him to be humbled... The idea is that God's going to bring him all the way down. And then notice what it goes on to say. It says, and this is our verse this morning, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. This is a very, very important verse because it lays out for us what Jesus is ultimately going to do. He, in essence, looks at Satan and says, look, um, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be an enmity between you and woman. There is going to be this animosity between the two of you because ultimately you are going to look at her and mankind as enemies, and they're going to look at you that way. 
There is going to always be, from this point on, a battle between humanity now. Between God's kingdom and what God wants and Satan's kingdom and what Satan wants. And he said, and notice what he says, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush his head, speaking of Jesus, and you will strike his heel. So he lays out this groundwork in, in Genesis here about this idea that ultimately, here, here's what he's saying uh, when God says this to the serpent. He said, ultimately, here's what's going to happen. Her, and it goes on later to talk about her seed, we're going to talk about that in a minute, will ultimately crush your head. Speaking of Jesus, your seed will ultimately bruise his heel. And it's the idea that mankind is going to crucify Jesus, but Jesus at the crucifixion and the resurrection is going to overcome Satan. And in Genesis chapter 3, all the way back, before Jesus, before Moses, before anything, we are introduced to the idea that God's plan is to save his people. And in order to do it, it's going to involve a man. And it's going to involve God wrapping himself as a man in human flesh and walking among us. And so that's what you have in, in Genesis chapter two, uh, Genesis chapter 3. Um, now, here's, here's what's interesting. When the Bible talks about this, it talks about the seed of the woman. Okay. Now, I want you to stop for a minute and think about what you know about reproduction. We know that in order for something to reproduce, it takes a seed and an egg, right? Seed of the woman. You catch that? That's what's unique. In other words, what God is saying here is, I am going to bring, since, since Satan, since the world fell into sin because Satan basically deceived Eve, and then Adam chose. Because it started there, he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a woman, and I'm going to use a woman to undo you. It's going to come through a woman. And you know the, the, the results. There's a whole bunch of things that happen as a result of the fall. Um, women are going to have a difficult time in childbirth. Original intent of God? No pain in childbirth. No pain at all. Pain was a foreign concept. Okay? Um, so originally, in God's economy of things, childbirth, walking apart. So get mad at Satan. Okay? That, that's, that's the problem. Work was now going to become hard. The ground was going to become difficult. You know what that means? That means prior to the creation, prior to the fall, you didn't need to till. You didn't need to work the ground. Gwen was out of a job. Um, you know, I mean, anybody to do with anybody to do with with, with chemicals on, on the ground, nitrogen. You needed to add nitrogen to it. It took care of itself. You didn't have to run a tiller through anything because when you walked out, it was like just this beautiful thing to plant anything in. There was no weeding. Weeds didn't exist. Now, 
Some of the things that we classify as weeds, technically, okay, were not to be looked at as weeds, but were to be looked at as part of creation. I don't know if you know and understand that or not. Like dandelions? We get rid of dandelions. But for centuries, people have used dandelions to make all kinds of things to eat and drink. Yeah, you guys are going, yeah, like grandma and her dandelion wine. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, throughout history, throughout history, that's been true. Um, you know, and, and, and like I say, it's just because everything got messed up with Satan. And, and the fall changed stuff. And part of the thing that changes, work was now going to be hard. One of the big changes, and this is what time, there's going to be an enmity, there's going to be a battle between Satan and people. And, and you need to understand that. And by the way, it's interesting that when Adam and Eve have their first child and they name him, one of the things that they say, one, his name actually means, I have gotten a man from Yahweh. I've gotten a man from God. The idea was that they believed that their son, their firstborn son, was actually going to be the one to deliver and bruise or, or wound the head of Satan. And then they find out when one kills the other one on their second side, you know, now all of a sudden this whole idea of, oh, no, there's a battle forever is, is ingrained in this thing. And they understand the implications of sin. And, and another thing, God takes them and casts them out of the garden. And then he puts two flaming swords by to say, look, you can't go back in here. It was, it was protection over them. There are all kinds of things that happen as a result of fall. But one of the keys, as you see right here, is that in this dark time in history, God steps in and says, look, it's not the end. I'm going to give you hope. There's going to be another way. And so ultimately, that's going to be Jesus on the cross. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. I want to talk to you about a passage in, in, in the Gospel of Luke. Um, it's the story of, we know it as Palm Sunday story, Okay. When Jesus comes marching in, a triumphal entry, and all of that. Um, let me explain to you the significance of the story and how it ties to this, I believe. When, <clears throat> when um, first of all, in the Gospels, you need to understand, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are very few stories that we find in all four Gospels. Even the birth of Christ is not listed in all four Gospels. And there's a reason for that. But... There are very few stories in the Bible that we see, and we often see them in three of the Gospels. Not often do we see them in all four. So when we see a story about Jesus in, the, in all four Gospels, it means that it like pushed that story to the front of the most important events in the life of Jesus. Okay? The story that we're looking at this morning, the triumphal entry, is found in all four. Okay? So let me take you to Luke's version of it and read it, and, and focus on one thing, and how it's tied to this. Here's what it says. Um, Luke uh, chapter 19, it says, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up Jerusalem. He approached Bethage and Bethany, the hill called Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go to the village ahead of you. As you enter, you'll find a colt, which no one has ever written. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. They were untying the coat. The owners asked, Why are you untying it? And Jesus said, The Lord needs it. Um, and they brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on, on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as they went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. So you know the story. They put Jesus on a donkey, a horse. By the way, typically in this culture, parades had horses because horses were animals of war and power and dominion, particularly in the Roman world in which you have this impressive Roman army 
who's, uh, it, it's, it's Passover time, so the Roman army has a large presence in Jerusalem at this time. They're trying to make sure that all the peace, everybody stays, stays nice and friendly. And so for Jesus to come riding in on a colt rather than a horse was significant. And so Jesus comes riding in, not with all the pomp and circumstance of the Roman army, but just riding in on a colt. And notice what happens. People start throwing their coats down as he's walking, which was a sign of incredible reverence to allow. I mean, think about it for a minute. You know, if I, I mean, you know, this is one of, this is a nice suit coat jacket. Can you imagine me taking this off and saying, hey, look, it's a, you know what, I, I don't want you to get, I don't, I don't want you to get any dust on your feet here on your way to your car. I mean, it's an incredible act of reverence and respect to do something like that. And that's what they start doing. Notice what, it goes on to say this. <clears throat> um, next uh, deal. When they came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Again, they had just seen Lazarus raised from the dead. Um, not, not too far. They had just had the story of Zacchaeus and coming down out of the tree. It says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees of the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. It's like, hey, hey, those guys can't say that. You're the teacher. Tell them they can't say that. Notice what Jesus said. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, in Jerusalem, you've got to understand, this is the Temple Mount. These stones are massive. They are impressive. They're impressive from a distance. They're even more impressive close up. They still have some of the remaining walls. You can actually visit. You go down this little thing, and you can actually see some of the walls that date all the way back to them. It's, it's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Because uh, literally, um, we're talking about stones like the size, like from here to the end of that wall, the, si- the width of this platform, setting side by side, and they're so tight you can't squeeze a piece of paper between them. Uh, incredibly impressive in this massive thing that they built. And he says, and he, and he goes on to say, he said, look, he said, even the stones would cry out. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. This is important because what happens is, is Jesus is coming down, getting ready to go into the city. He sees the city. He sees the Temple Mount. He sees all of that stuff. And it says he stops and cries. Now, the other time that he cries in the Bible is at the tomb of Lazarus. And it is a different word. This is a different word. This, this has this idea of he is overcome with emotion. There is something internally just that, 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 that can't not come out. And so he starts to cry. Um, And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but is now hidden from your eyes. The days are coming upon you when your enemies will be on the bankman against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone unturned because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus, knowing what was about to happen, knowing that on this day they praised him, but, but four days from now, five days from now, they're going to be yelling, crucify him. Knowing that they were going to basically, at this point in history, bruise his heel. That the very people who are crying out, Hosanna, are going to cry out, crucify him. And realizing that because of what's going to happen, because of that, 
he is going to come out of a tomb and he is going to rise again and he is going to wound the head of Satan. And he's sitting there understanding all that and then realizing that all of this that he's looking at is going to be laid waste in a matter of roughly about 30 plus years. It's all going to be devastated. And in the midst of all of this stuff, Jesus stops and it's too much for him to take. He stands there understanding that in a few short days, all of history, which started at Genesis chapter 3, is about to be fulfilled. And the sad thing is, all of these people crying out his name don't get it. They don't get it. And they don't understand the significance of it. And it is so much so that every gospel writer stops to tell this story. Because it is so significant that it, it, the emotions of Jesus become overwhelming to the point that they physically come out of his, uh, his, his, his eyes in tears to go, I wish they would get it. This is what we set up in Genesis chapter 3. And they don't get it. And it breaks his heart. Because you see, in Genesis chapter 3, God lays out the hope for the world. Yes, he set man up in his kingdom. Yes, man was supposed to represent him. Yes, man chose to reject him. But Jesus, God, in Genesis chapter 3, steps in and says, that's okay, I'll still redeem him. And here's how I'm going to do it. And when bring it, I'm going to bring myself in human flesh through a woman. And that woman, yeah, you won the battle here because you deceived her. But you know what? It's going to be through her that the Son of God comes. Let me give you a modern day analogy because we, we, you know, in the Bible language, he's going to bash your head in. Yep. Okay. You you got him on the heel. But he's going to knock your block off, Satan. Because you're going to think on that on that on that crucifixion day that you've won. But he's going to come out of a tomb and that's going to send you for a loop. Because I'll tell you what, it's going to change everything. And that's the great power of the resurrection story is that Satan understands that he doesn't win. And so Satan spends every free moment of his day trying to make this battle with us as the focus of it, trying to destroy us. So two takeaways for us. First of all, to those of you who may have never put your faith and trust in Christ, you need to understand that God has provided a way, that he offers it to you as a gift, that it's free, that it doesn't cost you anything, it costs him everything. And you will one day stand before God and you will either stand there in your sin or you will stand there in his righteousness. It depends on what you've done with that gift. And he offers it freely, but you have to accept it. It's not something that someone can do for you. It's something you have to do for yourself. It's not something that... Um, uh, 
a church or somebody else can do for you. It's something that you have to personally come to a point where you say, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. God, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. Be my Lord and Savior. And it starts that relationship that forever changes your eternal destiny. It starts in Genesis chapter 3 where God promised it in response to man's condition. Second thing is this. As Christians, I think we forget this. I think as Christians we forget that because of the garden, from that day forward, Satan has launched a battle and he is our enemy. And if you're a Christian here this morning, it should not surprise you that the world doesn't like you. It should not surprise you that when you and I stand up for the things that God says to stand up for, the world gets all bent out of shape. It should not surprise you that we don't have a world who gets up every day to say, how can we follow God? There is a spiritual battle that takes place every single day. Satan, every single day, and his hosts have one goal for you. They want to steal something from your life. They want to destroy something in your life. They want to kill you something in your life. And he doesn't care how he does it. Those of you who are married, every day Satan's got one goal. What can I do to mess this thing up today? What can I do? How can I get her to get mad at him? How can I get him to get mad at her? Every day, kids, you know what Satan's goal for you is? How can I get them to do something wrong? How can I get them to not listen to their parents? How can I get them to not do their homework? How can I get them to not clean their room? He wants to do anything he can to put enmity, to make you and your mom and dad, you and your teachers, you and whoever, at odds with each other. He wants to do nothing but meddle and mess stuff up. It should not surprise you. It should not surprise you when all of a sudden, you know, I found myself, okay, I'm going to, I get in trouble when I do this, but, because I didn't even say anything to my wife about it yesterday, but it bothered me, so now she's going to know, okay? Hey, <laughs> right, let me give you an example. I want to get real, real. I want to get real with you, okay? So here's what happened. I love her to death, but we have this routine on Saturday, Okay? And she does a bunch of house stuff, and I get my message all tidied up and everything all organized and all that kind of stuff. And we had the wedding yesterday, so I was working on that stuff too and, and stuff like that. And so I got a little bit of a break, and it was like, okay, honey, you know, I need to go out and, and do this real quick. And so um, I, I go out to cut grass, and, and, and then I come back in. And, 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 and every Saturday, she likes to wash windows, especially if it's nice, okay? And then she likes to, to I don't, she li- doesn't like to, she does this. She, she, she cleans stuff, okay? And she's like an OCD cleaner, okay? You've got to have special, she has a special clause that we use just for cleaning and wiping stuff down, okay? They've got some, I don't know, they got some metal thing and micronutrient thing in them and whatever it is. Any, I, don't, I don't know. Anyway, cut. 
All I know is I can't use them in the shop. Um, uh, so pfft, worthless to me. But anyway, so she's got her routine. And, and she, she, she cleans with this different stuff. And so, you know, and she's doing all this natural vinegar. You know, I mean, I, 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 if they sell vinegar in a 55-gallon barrel, somebody please tell me because I'm going to buy it that way. I'm tired of hauling one-gallon jugs in. But anyway, so I go to the sink in the kitchen, and she's got a little tub there with the stuff in it and the rag soaking, so I can't use that sink. So then I go to utility room sink, and she's got something soaking in that sink, and I can't use that sink to wash my hands up now. And I'm thinking, and I'm getting mad. I'm getting mad. I'm thinking, I want to wash my hands. I have, I'm covered in dirt from cutting the grass. I want to get all of this off. I want to wash my hands, and I can't use either one of those things. And you know how it is with those ki- kitchen sinks. Are, I mean, bathroom sinks are worthless. You know, it's like, oh, you know, with the little bitty things, and you can't get your hands in. So, so now, so, and then I stop, and I, I start thinking about this. I think, and here's what, here's what, here's what I rationalized. It. I thought, and, and I was going to say something. I really was. I was just close to saying something. And, 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 of course, now I've blown it. But um, I was this close to say something. <laughs> and I stopped myself, and I said this. I said, really? You're going to go tell your wife that you're upset because she's helping clean a house that you live in and make it even more cleaner than it already was. And you're, yeah, and you're going to be dumb enough to say something? And I thought, James says, slow to speak. Shut up. Don't say anything. Let it go. You know, and then the Frozen song came to mind. Let it go. Let it go. You know, so, um, so I didn't say anything. So I took one of the tubs out and set it up on a thing and washed all the stuff off and all that kind of stuff and then put the tub back and went on my merry way and thought, you know what? If I had blown it there, as crazy as this sounds, Satan would have won. Because my wife would have gone, really? She would have said more than that. But, I mean, we would have started there. (laughs) She would have started there. And then I would have responded, and then she would have responded, and then it would have been me, and it would have escalated, and Satan would be sitting in the corner going, yes, I won. And instead, I decided that at the end of the day, God was going to be in heaven going, yes, I won. Because Satan wants nothing more than to put division between us. It's part of the fall. And it is so easy, and we fall prey to it every single day because we don't stay on our guard to say, you're not winning today. And I want to challenge you with this because we forget that part of the fall is Satan's going to be pecking away at us all day long to try to create division and problems and issues. And I'm convinced most of everything we deal with, if we would frame it in the world of a spiritual battle, 
we would solve most of the problems that we deal with. And fortunately for me, I was smart enough yesterday to keep my mouth shut and let my wife just clean away and tie up every sink in the house if she wanted because I've got two hydrants outside that I could have used. And, and I know it's silly, but you know as well as I do, that's where we live. And you think about it. Most of the stuff you have fought over or argued over or struggled with or whatever else this past week has been silly stuff. It's been sink stuff. And I just want to challenge you. Look, don't let him win this week. Don't let him win. And you and I have the power every day to, if so to speak, thumb our nose at Satan and say, you're not winning this one. So my challenge for you goes something like this. As we end, my idea, my my prayer for you is this. We're all from the seed of of Adam, but we choose to be children of God. As his children, we've got to show the world what Jesus really looks like. We represent him every day in our words, in our actions, and the way we live our lives among people every day. So represent him well. Don't let Satan win this week. Let's pray. Lord, help us. God, we all struggle and we all go through stuff. And Lord, it's so easy to lose our focus and to make it about silly things instead of things that, Lord, really it's a spiritual battle. And Satan has has gotten his foot in the door in so many areas. And Lord, we don't see it as such, so help us to understand it that way this week. And when we're tempted to speak and we need to be quiet, help us to be quiet. And Lord, when we're quiet, when we need to stand up and say something for your sake and for your testimony, help us to speak. So Lord, when it is all said and done, may we be able to come to the end of whatever issue we're struggling with and be able to step back and say, Satan didn't win this one. And use us this week. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Um, Let's stand together.